Welcome to the New Beginnings Fellowship Podcast. Wherever you're listening, we hope you're encouraged by today's message. Good morning. If you're excited to be in the house, Lord, make some noise this morning. Yeah! It's going to be a great Sunday. Guys, welcome. We are so glad you're here. Those of you who don't know me, let me introduce myself. My name is Matt. I have the wonderful honor and privilege to be the associate pastor here at New Beginnings Fellowship, where it's our heart to radically love, serve, and encourage. Guys, um, I'm really excited about our message today. I'm excited to be back in Philippians. We had a little bit of a hiatus, some things going on there for a few weeks, and we're back. And uh, man, I'm just chomping at the bit to talk about this today. Uh, But first, I want to give a very special Welcome and shout out to those of you tuning in online. Hey guys, thanks for uh, hopping on this morning. But anyways, I'm going to get into it in just a second, but I want to talk about something I'm thankful for. I am so thankful for God's Word. It has uh, meant so much in my life. It it has been a guiding force for me personally, uh, in my marriage, in in our family, Um, all the way back to the beginning, actually, of our marriage. It it came into play. Uh, I remember shortly after Amber and I, my wife, uh, she was up here a moment ago. She's right there. Shortly after we got married, we had our first, we'll say, minor disagreement, right? We, had, we weren't seeing eye to eye on whose responsibility it was to make coffee in the mornings. And being a woman of God, Amber said, I'm going to see what God's word says about this. I'm like, okay. I feel like it's a little bit outside of the purview of scripture, but you go for it, boo. So... You know, we, we come back to it a little bit later that day, and uh, I'm blown away when she says, it says right here that men should be the ones to daily make coffee. I'm like, you're kidding. I need you. I demanded, show me in Scripture right now where it says that. And she holds it up in my face. Clear as day. She goes, see, look what it says. He brews. He brews. I don't, what, do you, what do you say to that? I and every morning since, I've made coffee. But anyways, um, what's, <laughs> that's, that's the only bad joke I think I, I uh, have today. So you are, you'll be spared anything further. Guys, we are in Philippians chapter 3 today, starting in verse 12. And uh, we're going to continue on. Uh, this message kind of piggybacks a little bit what Pastor Ryan was talking about. It kind of completes those thoughts uh, that he began last week. And we're starting in verse 12, and it says this. Uh, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I think, or excuse me, I press on towards the goal uh, for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. But those of us who are mature think in this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal That also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. 
And that is God's word. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you um, that it is sharp, it is meaningful, and it is powerful and thriving even today. I pray that it would be uh, made clear, your designs of your word uh, in this place, that it would penetrate to the hearts and the minds of every single person in this room, making a difference. They would walk out of here forever changed with what they hear. Lord, we love you and we give you the glory for what is about to take place. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have you guys ever seen those clips? Um, They're often cheesy, often played for laughs, um, where someone is asking, what is the secret of life? Have you seen those? Uh, The ones that pop into my mind are often animated for some reason. Someone's like maybe climbing a mountain to get to some wise figure. And it's, it's played as though no one could possibly ever know the answer to that, right? What if I told you that right here in today's text, Paul is addressing that very question. In this passage, Paul calls us to an impossible task. It's it's a task that can only be pulled off by God, and it is a dedicated and lifelong pursuit of intimacy with Jesus Christ. This pursuit leads us to joy, it leads us to significance, and it leads us uh, to purpose in this life and in eternity. Paul urges Christians to set their earthly goals on heavenly gains. Let me say that again. Paul urges Christians to set their earthly goals on heavenly gains. To accomplish this, Paul breaks this passage into two parts. We've got kind of the first half and the second half. And he will call these two parts training tips. Paul will give us training tips to accomplish these heavenly goals. And the first is this, to pursue God's prize. To pursue God's prize. In this section, Paul compares our Christian walk to a competitive race. Has anybody in here ever been in a race? Show of hands. Anybody in here ever been in a race? A couple of you, a few of you, yes. Now, you may not realize this, but your pastor, Pastor Richard, was in a race yesterday. It was a a big race. It was an ambitious race. I mean, I I was in a race this week. I, I raced some fourth graders. It's true. I smoked them. No big deal. But something, something you got to know about me, I like short races. I don't like long, hard, arduous races. I like the short races. But go as hard as you can for about 30 seconds, and then it's over. And um, I found over the years that's something that runs in the family. Um, I often come up here, and I, I mention my kids, uh, my son Carson, God bless him. He is me all over again, and he will do things sometimes. This is not a joke. I, he will do things sometime, and if my dad is there, I'll just turn to him and I'll apologize. I'm like, Dad, I am so sorry that I put you through that thing that just happened. And Carson, I think, likes short races too, and we learned that early on. And the most obvious example of that was in seventh grade. Going into seventh grade, kids can start doing school sports, and he decided he wanted to do cross country. I think the only thing he knew about cross country that was that all of his friends were doing it. <laughs> and we show up for that first meet, and he doesn't have to say he doesn't like it. The agony is dripping off of his face. He looked like he was in physical pain, just, oh, it, it was the worst thing. That was his first and last year of cross country. But anyways, 
the goal of any type of race, uh, the type of, the, of race that Paul is talking about here is to win a prize. And at that time, the prizes were oftentimes wreaths. Anyhow, the, the metaphor of a race being used here, it isn't meant to represent salvation. Like so many times we see races referenced in scripture and it's talking about salvation. That's not what they're talking about here. What we're talking about here is uh, the representation of spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity. Passionately pursuing intimacy with Christ. The problem we experience with that pursuit of intimacy with Christ is this. So oftentimes in this life, there are things that are literally screaming for our attention, right? Things that want to pull us off course, take our focus away from the things that are most important. Everyone needs something from you. Everyone's trying to tell you what's best for you. Culture knows better than you. This might sound crazy, but sometimes it's like we've forgotten that we are ultimately the ones who are in control of our lives, amen? Sometimes it feels that way, like everybody knows better about what's best for us than us. You see, Paul's focused life empowered him to become a literal world changer. What would happen if we were able to focus our lives just a little bit more? What could we do? What could we accomplish? What could we pull off? Paul shares his experience in verses 12 through 14 when he says this, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. We'll talk about what those pronouns, it, mean here in a little bit. Because Christ Jesus had made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straightening forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul is quick to point out that he has not yet reached the goal described in verses 10 and 11. The prize of knowing Christ and be rewarded in him. Twice he acknowledges this in verses 12 and 13. And it's comforting to know that even Paul himself did not reach perfection in this life. We do not, uh, he did not feel like he had arrived. And if this is true of Paul... How much more is it true of us? Paul has humble dissatisfaction. Paul has holy discontentment, if you will. He does not compare himself to other believers where he can make himself feel good. What he did is he compared himself to the ultimate example. Who is the ultimate example? Christ Jesus. That was the example that he was aspiring to. And he recognized when he looked at Jesus Christ that bro had a long ways to go. This is why Paul says twice, I press on, in verses 12 and 14, I press on. This present tense verb, dioko, is often translated to pursue or to persecute. It's a strong verb used here for one who runs swiftly in a race to obtain a prize. The prize mentioned in verse 14 is referred to as it. I mentioned that earlier, it's it. Okay, And that refers to uh, the goal of knowing Christ that also results in eternal reward. That is the it. Knowing Christ to the extent that you have an eternal reward. Paul seeks to lay hold. That's a, a phrase that is used in many other, um, many other translations. To lay hold. To lay hold. As it says uh, in other versions, katalambano, katalambano of this great pursuit because Christ laid hold of him. Listen, there's something I want you to know and I think Paul wants you to know this morning as well. 
uh, and that's this. God's goal for you is not just to get you in the door of heaven. Let me say that again. Our goal in this life is not to merely get in the door of heaven. That's not God's goal for you as well. Did you know that? I hope you knew that this morning. God's goal isn't to get you in the door. He's not just trying to save you. He's not just trying to give you fire insurance. No. God's goal is to transform you by moving you to Christ's likeness. God wants you, you to become more like his son. He saved you not just for heaven, but he saved you so you can make a difference here on earth. God has called you to something. He has big plans and purposes for your life. And this plan will lead you to joy, fulfillment, contentment. It is what you are called for. And ultimately, it will lead you to eternal blessing. His goal is for you to pursue the prize of intimacy with Christ and the eternal rewards that come with it. Set your earthly goals on heavenly gains. So maybe you're sitting in here this morning and you're thinking, wow, Matt, that sounds awesome, but... How do I develop this type of mindset that you're talking about? In verses 13, Paul shares two very specific ways that we can pursue God's prize. The first is to choose to forget what lies behind you. This is important. I feel like this is really important for some people in this room here today. Choose to forget what lies behind you. Why? Because what's past is past. That's really freeing to say. I want you to repeat after me. What's past is past. Ah, it feels good, right? It's easy to get fixated on yesterday for some reason. We can't let it go. The good old days. Those days in high school or in college when you were really something. Or maybe you thought you were, right? It's easy to fixate on the past successes of our lives, but the problem is that's not the reality of the world that we live in. Those past successes are great, but what do they mean right now? Nothing. The world we live in asks, what have you done for me lately? Right? It's kind of, I feel like this is kind of sounding harsh, but it's true. Your boss doesn't care about the great year you had in 2021 if you are tanking in 2023. Right? Those great grades you got last fall don't mean anything if you're failing three classes right now. It doesn't matter. Ryan's message last week was incredible, but that doesn't mean we don't have to bring the word this week. We can't rest on our worlds. Ryan, your message last week was incredible. I don't know if you're still in here. It was. But we have to keep hustling. We have to keep grinding. We have to keep moving forward and not looking back. It doesn't matter what our successes in the past look like. And you know what else doesn't matter that much? The failures we've had in the past. Yes, we can learn from them. We can grow from them. But we cannot fixate on our past failures. Maybe you had an unhealthy relationship that now brings you so much shame. Maybe you have a failed marriage. Maybe you've got kids that you're, uh, that you're estranged from. You don't talk to them anymore. Maybe you feel like you've been running from God for so long, turning your back, living in sin, that there's no way 
He could ever use someone as messed up as you. You know what? That is a lie straight from the pits of hell. God wants you to know today that his sons and his daughters are forgiven and their uh, their sins are forgotten forever. You are released of that. That's not who you are. It might be who you were, but that's not who you are anymore. There is no past failure that can separate us from the love of God, just as there is no past successes that can exempt us from continuing to pursue more victories for God. It's important. Either way, looking back can be catastrophic. In 1954, on May 6th, Roger Bannister became the first man in history to run a mile in less than four minutes. Within two months, John Landy eclipsed his record by 1.4 seconds. On August 7th, the two met together for a historic race. As they moved into the last lap of this race, Landy held the lead. It looked as if he was going to get the win. But as he neared the finish line, he was haunted by one thought. Where's Bannister? Where's Bannister? And as he turned to look, Bannister shot right past him at the last moment and won the race. Landy later told a Times Magazine reporter, if I hadn't looked back, I would have won the race. If I hadn't looked back, I would have won the race. What a great reminder for you and me. If we don't look back, then our eyes are fixed on where it is supposed to be, the finish line, the goal, where we want to go. Don't look back unless you're planning on going back. We have to press on in Christ and not look back. Why? Because what's past is past. Second way we can pursue God's prize is to choose to reach forward to what lies ahead. So not only are we not going to look back, we're going to look forward to reach forward to what lies ahead. In this passage, Paul is reaching forward and pressing on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That is the heavenward call of Paul to Christ Jesus himself and the promise of eternal rewards. Paul longs to hear Jesus say, as he does in Matthew 25, 21, well done, good and faithful servant. Paul transitions in verses 15 and 16 to offer a word of encouragement. He says this, let those of us who are mature think in this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. What we have attained, not what we are going to attain. Not what we hope to attain, but what we have attained. That's important. His exhortation right here is keep living the same standards to which you have attained. Translation, apply what you know. Apply what you know. Persevere in your faith. Keep going. Don't worry about what you don't know. Take a baby step this week and then take another one next week. Just be obedient one day at a time. 
I tell my kids all the time, all you have control over is what you have control over. And oftentimes that's just today. All we have full control over is a moment at times. We are, and we are all at a different place in our spiritual growth. However, as individuals and as a community, we are all called to press on and pursue Christ in everything. We are to pursue him in everything. First training tip number one, pursue God's prize, which leads us to training tip number two, and that is imitate godly leaders. Imitate godly leaders. When I first read this, and I found out later, a lot of people initially think this as well, these two things seem disjointed, disconnected. How do they come together? Scholars will sometimes struggle to see how this passage connects to the last, pursue God's prize, imitate godly leaders. What do they have in common? If you take a closer look, it's evident that one thing is made clear in this section, and that's this. One way to grow closer in our faith and pursue God's prize is through the influence of other believers. Amen? We desperately need each other in this life, church family. We need each other more than you probably even realize right now. We do. We need each other because our goal should not be to merely survive in this life, but we should want to see one another thrive in this life. Amen? We want to see one another thrive. In verse 17, Paul says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul commands the Philippians. He commands them, follow my example. Follow my example. It's interesting to note that he does this eight other times throughout Scripture. This is the only time he says, do as I do. He does it eight other times. Initially, when I began to study this passage, I was a little hung up here. I think it was last Sunday night I was talking to the teaching team about this. I'm like, I I feel like I, I know I'm off here, but here's what I'm thinking. I feel like Paul's coming across a little arrogant right here. And I had to go back and reread and and look at the previous section. And then I saw something that was absolutely crucial, something that was absolutely critical. Paul understands the importance of providing a real life flesh and blood example to other believers. And who better? Remember, Paul is fully committed to Christ to the extent that he said, Christ has made me his own. He gave possession of himself over to Christ. He is no longer his own. That's why he has, he has the ability to say, do as I do. Join in imitating me because I am not my own. I am his. Paul knew something that's still important today. Mature Christians are to be role models for more immature Christians. This is important. We're to all look to and imitate the godly leaders in our lives. Look again at what Paul says here. Follow my example. Paul is not trying to create Paul clones here. He's trying to replicate uh, lookalikes of Jesus Christ because he is not his own. So again, he commands the church to observe the Greek skopeo, others to live out Christ-like lives. So it's not imitating Paul, 
but other mature believers as well. Paul is smart. He didn't want to be the only example. So he's pointing to other leaders with godly character besides himself, examples for those growing in the faith to look to. So with that this morning, we arrive at a couple of questions we should be asking ourselves, a little self-assessment, if you will. Did you guys know there was going to be a test today? The first question is this. The question you should be asking yourself is, who are you following? Who are you following? If you don't have a brother and sister of Christ that you can look to as an example, I can promise you, you aren't growing to the extent you should or could be. You need someone, we all need someone who's further along in the, their faith walk than us that we can look to as a role model and an example in our lives. I'm extremely blessed to work side by side with incredibly wise, disciplined, godly men right here at MBF. And a more external example, um, my first cousin, our, our family's very tight-knit, my first cousin Jen married a godly man who I'm extremely close with. His name is Josh. They have a thriving uh, church a couple blocks from the campus of Mizzou in Columbia, and he has been a spiritual mentor for me for years. It makes a huge difference to have someone who's further along in the faith you can call on to offer guidance and wisdom to in those moments when we so desperately need them. Which begs the question, who are you following? If you don't know, maybe it's, start, it's time to start asking around. So we've asked the first question, who are you following? Which brings us to the second question we should be asking ourselves this morning, and that's this, who is following you? Who is following you? Can you say to your spouse, can you say to your children, can you say to other Christians, follow me as I follow Christ? Can you? I hope so, because it is crucial. Many of us will limit that question to those closest to us. My, the people following me are my children. The people following me are my spouse, the, maybe my grandchildren, etc. And we just want to keep it limited right there. The problem with that is that many of us have a much larger sphere of influence than that, whether you realize it or not. Did you know the average American has a sphere of influence of 250 people? The average American has influence over 250 people, average. I can promise you there are people in this room right now who has way more than that. What does that mean? Why is that important? That means that God likely wants us to influence more people for him than we currently are. We need to be proactive. We need to be taking this responsibility seriously. We have a responsibility to him. What are you prepared to do with the influence God has given you today? What are you prepared to do? Verses 18 through 21, God gives us a couple of reasons why it's important to be godly example to others. It's important to be godly examples because everyone is influenced by someone. Let me say that again. It's important that we are godly examples because everyone is going to be influenced by someone. And I promise you today there are voices out there that you, your spouse, your children 
are going to be influenced by if you do not step up. In verses 18 and 19, Paul points to ungodly examples and contrasts them with godly examples in the previous verse. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies to the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. To be clear, there's debate about who exactly Paul is talking about here. We don't exactly know who he's referencing here. Many scholars uh, believe that Paul is referencing the Judaizers uh, that he uh, warned us against, mentioned in verse 3 of this chapter. Ryan spoke about the Judaizers last week. Um, The reason Paul might be speaking of someone else here is because in verse 18 and 19, it seems like uh, these people are into a lot more loose and hedonistic lifestyles than the legalistic, self-disciplined lifestyles of the Judaizers. Remember, these were hyper, um, hyper-religious people. So if this is the case, and God is speaking of yet another group that the Philippians should be wary of, many people believe here uh, that Paul is referring to professing Christians that have walked away from the church. Today we'll call them imposter Christians. They claim to be Christians, but they don't follow They claim him by name alone. Paul is incredibly concerned by these imposter Christians and their potential influence they could exert over the church of Philippi. And he highlights five characteristics that contrast them to true believers. And I'm going to go through these really fast. So hang on. Number one, imposter Christians are enemies to the cross of Christ. Imposter Christians are enemies to the cross of Christ. Now, Paul is not necessarily talking about doctrine here. He's referring to the walk, to the lifestyle, to the way they portray themselves, these people. It's also worth pointing out that Paul says these individuals are enemies to the cross of Christ, not necessarily enemies to Christ himself. And this suggests that these people um, seek to identify themselves with Christ, but diminish, distort, and misrepresent what the cross represents. Number two. Imposter Christians are those whose end is destruction. These individuals don't believe in Christ alone for their salvation. They don't. And as a result, they are heading towards eternal judgment. That's a fact. Number three, imposter Christians are those whose God is their belly or whose God is their appetite. This sinful characteristic is not just a reference to gluttonous behavior. It can refer to the uninhibited pursuit of any type of physical gratification, an appetite for sex, an appetite for money, power, etc. Their God does not reside in the heavens. Their God resides in their bodies. This is the graphic way of saying they live only for the pleasures of this life and their lives are enslaved to gratifying their own lusts. Number four. Imposter Christians are those whose glory is in their shame. This is a tough one. This is a description of those who are proud of their excesses, their drunkenness, their promiscuity. They're glorifying in their sins. There is no, there, there is no shame in it whatsoever. Um, they're glorifying in their sin and their independence from God. This is a lifestyle that says, I don't need you, God. 
I call the shots. I have my own freedom. I feel like this is one that really resounds today, is prevalent today in people who claim Christ and then revel in their sin two Facebook posts later, right? Number five, imposter Christians are those who set their minds on earthly things. This kind of sums it all up. These individuals put their heart and their hope on the things not of heaven, but on the things of this world. Instead of setting their earthly goals on heavenly gains, they set their earthly goals on earthly gains. And they're limited. The point of chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, is this. People matter. People matter. In fact, your relationship can make the difference of whether or not you are rewarded by Christ. What will keep you from gaining a heavenly prize? What will keep you from that? If you're not following godly examples, begin today. Don't let anyone take your prize. Don't let anybody take your prize. Kind of wrapping up here. The second reason it is important to imitate godly examples is this. Heaven is your home. Let me say that again. If you claim Christ as Lord and Savior of your life, this is not your home. Heaven is your home. We don't belong here. Heaven is your home. Paul states in the final two verses of this passage, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Folks, we are aliens and we are strangers that are just passing through this life. Our citizenship, our polituma, Greek is not my second language, is not on earth, it is in heaven And the writer of Hebrews talks about this in chapter 11. He talks about the faith displayed in heroes of scripture like Abel, like Enoch, like Sarah, like Abraham. And look at what it says starting in verse 13 of Hebrews 11. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth for people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland that they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out they would have had an opportunity had opportunity to return but as it is they desire a better country that is a heavenly one therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared them a city prepared them a city He's prepared you a city. This world is not our home. We don't belong here. We're strangers, exiles. But we have a heavenly home awaiting us, amen? Like the champions of the scripture, we ought to live our lives in a way that portray our position in Christ. We love how we as Christians are described in these passages. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are seeking our homeland. Folks, if you are radically devoted to and uh, 
deeply in love with your Lord and Savior, people should know when they spend five minutes with you that you don't belong here, that you're different, that you are an exile, that you are, that you are a, a stranger in a strange land. Our citizenship is not in this world, but it's in a place higher, a place that we yearn to return to because we know, as it says in 2 Timothy 4, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. We just want to go home. We want to go home, and we want you to be there with us. So what are we going to do? Is there anything standing in your way today? Perhaps you're in here today and you're in denial. Maybe you're one of those imposter Christians. Now, I'm not trying to step on any toes this morning, but those descriptions I gave earlier sound a little too familiar. You're going to have an opportunity to get real and get right with your God today. If you're still here, I know that God's not done with you. Now, maybe you're here today and you can't relate to much I've said at all today because you don't know the Savior that I'm talking about. That can change as well. Your God has plans and purposes for your life greater than anything you could ever imagine. I was speaking with a couple last night. We can come up with plans. We can come up with visions of what we think is best. God ways, God's ways are always better, always brighter, always more beautiful than what we can create on our own. But you've got to submit to him. You have to turn your life over to him. Maybe you did once, maybe you, and you've taken it back. It's time to resubmit to him today. And we're going to have a chance to do that. If I can get everybody in here to bow your heads. Every head bowed. Nobody looking around. In just a second, as a body of believers, we're going to say a prayer together. If you don't know Jesus Christ and Lord, as Lord and Savior of your life, and you're ready to walk into that relationship for eternity. If you say that prayer and you believe in your heart, everything can change today. If you've walked away and you're ready to resubmit to him today and you say that prayer, he's waiting with arms outstretched. Everybody would. I'd like for you to repeat this prayer after me. Dear Jesus, I have many sins, but you still love me. You still choose me. I give you my life today. I believe you died on a cross. I believe you rose from the grave. And I believe your blood covers all my sins. Come be the Lord of my life. Dear Jesus, I pray for every single heart and soul in this room. I pray for every single person. I pray for the person that said that prayer today, believe in their heart and is ready to walk into an eternal, 
an eternal assignment from their Heavenly Father today. I thank you for them. Every head still bowed. If you said that prayer today for the very first time or you rededicated your life to him, here's what I want you to do. In just a moment, I'm going to count to three and I'd like for you to raise your hand. I want you to do that for a couple reasons. I want you to be as proud in this moment as your God is in heaven of you in this moment, number one. And number two, I want to see you. I want to have that visual because I'm going to be thinking about you and praying for you this week. So on the count of three, I want to see those hands up. One, don't be afraid. Two, your heavenly Father is grinning ear to ear because of you right now. Three, get those hands up. I see your hand. I see your hands in the back. Thank you, Jesus. Is there anybody else? Is there anybody else? Church, can we celebrate right now? The lost came home. God is so good. God is so good. If you raised your hand this morning, maybe you didn't even raise your hand because you're scared or nervous or whatever, hey, that's okay. Here's what I want you to do. In the seat backs in front of you, grab one of those connection cards, check mark those boxes that I, I accepted Jesus to rededicate in my life today. Take it to the Welcome Center and, uh, because a pastoral staff member would like to follow up with you and give you some words of encouragement and next steps this week. Gosh, man, we are so very proud of you. I hope you know that. Can we celebrate one more time? Man, that's awesome. I love that so much. Man, guys, it's an honor and a privilege be able to come up on this stage and share God's word. I, I'm humbled. Thank you so much. Um, so until next time, guys, I love you. We'll see you then. Thanks for joining us today. If you'd like to learn more about New Beginnings Fellowship, connect with us or give, visit nbfhollister.org. Have a great week. And remember, we are the church who radically loves, serves, and encourages.